السلام علیکم ورحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل عقده من لساني يفقهوا قولي ربنا زدنا علما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما صليت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد باب الدين يسر باب chapter الدين the religion is يسر is what does it mean that this religion is easy what does the word يسر mean in Arabic simple what does it mean something that is doable something that is possible it doesn't mean simple but what it means is that whatever allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded us to do it is possible for us to do it so in other words this deen is practical it's not impossible rather it is practical allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the quran wama ja'ala alaykum fi ad-deen min harajin in surah al-hajj that Allah has not placed any haraj, any difficulty. He has not imposed any difficulty for you in the deen. Similarly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also says that الَّذِينَ يَتَّبِعُونَ الرَّسُولَ النَّبِيَّ الْأُمِّيِّ الَّذِي يَجِدُونَهُ مَكْتُوبٌ عِنْدَهُمْ فِي التَّوْرَاتِ وَالْإِنْجِيلِ يَأْمُرُهُمْ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ وَيَنْهَاهُمْ عَنِ الْمُنْكَرِ وَيُحِلُّ لَهُمُ الطَّيِّبَاتِ وَيُحَرِّمُ عَلَيْهِمُ الْخَبَائِسِ He makes lawful for them what? Good things. And he makes prohibited for them bad things. وَيَضَعُ عَنْهُمْ إِصْرَهُمْ And he removes from them their chains, وَالْأَغْلَالِ And the shackles, أَلَّتِي كَانَتْ عَلَيْهِمْ So in other words, the difficulties that were imposed on the previous nations, especially those difficulties that were imposed on who? The Bani Israel. This religion removed them. The Prophet ﷺ was sent to remove those difficulties from the people. Can you think of any difficulty that was imposed on them? Like for example, For them, Saturday was a day of worship and that meant no worldly tasks whatsoever. Extremely difficult. Very, very hard. To the point that it became a great test for them. Similarly, we learned that when they worshipped the calf, what was the punishment for them? That every single one of them had to be killed. فَقْتُلُوا أَنفُسَكُمْ فَقْتُلُوا أَنفُسَكُمْ And it is said that the people had to stand before one another in broad daylight and kill one another just like a battle is fought. Just imagine, it was something very difficult. So this religion that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given to His last messenger, to His final ummah, what is this religion? It is easy, it is practical, it is doable, it's not difficult. Question, why does Imam Bukhari mention this in Kitab al-Iman? What do you think the relationship is? That religion is easy with Kitab al-Iman. That we have learned that Iman includes actions. Iman includes actions. And so he's clarifying over here that where Iman requires actions from us, those actions are possible. They are doable. They're not impossible. They are easy. And also if you think about it, it has been mentioned in this kitab that praying salah is from Iman, jihad is from Iman. Inshallah we will also learn that zakat is from Iman, qiyam is from Iman, fasting is from Iman. So all of these actions are 
from Iman. So if a person is a believer, he has to perform all of these actions. So one should not be afraid on one hand that, though, oh, this is too much, I cannot do it. No, it is possible. And secondly, a person must not exceed these bounds either. Like meaning he should not exceed them going beyond what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Messenger have commanded. Because what Allah and His Messenger have told us, that is easy and best and practical. Beyond that or less than that is something that could harm us. وَقَوْلُ النَّبِيِّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ And the statement of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم that أَحَبُّ الدِّينِ أَحَبُّ Most beloved a deen religion إِلَى اللَّهِ to Allah The best religion the deen which is most beloved to Allah is which one? الْحَنِيفِيَّةُ السَّمْحَةُ الْحَنِيفِيَّةُ Meaning that which is Hanif And what does Hanif mean? Who was Hanif? Ibrahim alayhi salam. And what do we learn about Ibrahim alayhi salam? That وَمَا كَانَ مِنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ That Hanif is one who leaves everything else, meaning he, he does not devote himself to anything but who? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He does not get distracted by the things that come in his way. Rather, he is fully and completely devoted to who? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the religion that is most beloved to Allah is which religion? In which a person is wholeheartedly and completely devoted to who? Allah. And asamha. What does asamha mean? Asamha literally means to be generous, to be kind. So this religion is what? Generous. Meaning it teaches people to be generous, to be giving. That instead of taking, 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 be giving, be generous, be kind. And this is why the word asamha uh, has also been understood as uh, natural or straightforward or simple. How natural? Because we see that in this whole world, in this whole universe, we see that everything is giving. Where things take, they also give. Like for example, the honeybee. It's constantly giving. So everything is giving. So similarly, this religion also teaches us to be giving. So in other words, it's a natural religion. It's a religion that we are able to practice. And this religion is the one that is most beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. حدثنا عبد السلام بن مطهر قال حدثنا عمر بن علي عن معن بن محمد الغفاري عن سعيد بن أبي سعيد المقبري عن أبي هريرة عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال إن الدين يسر Indeed, the religion is yusr. It is ease. ولن and never يشاد He makes difficult. Adina, the religion, ahadun, anyone. Meaning no one makes the religion difficult, illa except ghalabahu. It overpowers him. It overburdens him. Therefore, fasaddidu. Fa, so, saddidu, become straight or do properly. Wa and qaribu. Near. Come close or come near. And in brackets you can write to perfection. Wa and abshiru, rejoice. Three commands are being given over here. Saddidu, do right. Qaribu, what does qaribu mean? Try to be as near as, as possible to perfection. And thirdly, rejoice, be happy. And fourthly, wasta'inu, and seek help. How? Bilghadwati. By the morning. Warrawhati. And the evening. وَشَيْءٍ and apart مِنْ from الدُّلْجَةِ The night time. The Prophet ﷺ said, الدِّينُ يُسْرٌ That this religion is yusr. It hasn't been said 
that yusr is minad-deen, that yusr is a part of religion, or that deen is from ease. No, what has been said, that deen is yusr, meaning that the religion is in fact, in reality, ease. That the religion in and of itself is easy, meaning in its entirety, the entire religion, every aspect of it, every part of it is what? It is easy. So for example, when you look at this religion, when it comes to all of the acts of worship, from tahara to salah to zakah to sabr to any act of worship, is it easy? Is it possible? Is it doable? Yes, it is. Because if it was impossible, if it was extremely difficult, then there would be only a few people who would be practicing this religion. The fact that hundreds and thousands of people live this way and have lived this way from the very beginning is an evidence that this religion is easy. In the Qur'an, so many stories of the people of the past have been mentioned. Righteous people of the past. What does it show? That from Adam salam until the end of time, people are going to be practicing this religion, which shows that this religion is easy. And if you think about it, for example, the command to pray. We haven't been commanded to pray 50 salawat a day. We have been commanded to pray how many? Five. And is it possible? Yes, it is. So, first of all, in all of the ibadat, how is the religion? Easy. Secondly, anything that requires ease, anything that requires that it should be facilitated, meaning if something is difficult for a person and it should be made easy, is it made easy in the religion? Yes. So for example, if a person has to pray salah, but he's unable to stand and pray, is it made easy for him? How? That he's supposed to sit and pray. Isn't it? So anything that is difficult for a person temporarily, then what happens? It brings ease. Tajlibu taysir. This is also a, a principle of fiqh. Does anyone remember the exact term? Right? That difficulty brings ease. Thirdly, if something is impossible for a person, meaning he is not able to do it at all, then he is not required to do it. For example, hajj. That if a person is unable to go for hajj, it's not possible for him. Is he required to go? No. Similarly, we have been told, don't eat haram. It's a command. But if a person is in a situation where the only food available to him is haram, then is he allowed to eat it? Yes. So that condition has been dropped from him. Isn't it? So this is how the religion is easy at every level. That First of all, everything is practical. Secondly, if ease is required, it is made easy. Then thirdly, if it's impossible, then the command is completely removed away from the person. If a person is unable to do something, he's not required to do it. He's not mukallaf with regards to that action, with regards to that command. So this shows to us that this religion of ours is inherently easy. However, the Prophet ﷺ said that وَلَن يُشَادَّ الدِّينَ أَحَدٌ إِلَّا غَلَبَهُ That no one makes the religion shadid upon himself except that the religion will overpower him. What does it mean by this? That where religion is inherently easy, it is also possible to make the religion very difficult upon oneself. And when a person makes the religion difficult upon himself, then what happens? Can he continue for long? He cannot continue for long. He will be unable to continue in that way. He will resent what he's doing or he will get tired of what he's doing or he will give up what he's doing. He will not be able to continue in that way.
إِلَّا غَلَبَهُ So in other words, if a person makes a religion difficult upon himself, then it will be made difficult for him. If a person makes a religion difficult upon himself, then what will happen? It will be made difficult for him. And we can understand this in two ways, that firstly, when the religion was being revealed, and secondly, after the religion was completed. When the religion was being revealed, if people demanded difficulty, was the religion made difficult for them? Yes. So for example, the Bani Israel, they were told slaughter a cow. What did they do? Did they create difficulty for themselves? Yes. They kept asking questions. What's the color? What's the type? Which kind? Hmm? And was it made difficult? Yes. The more difficult they made for themselves, the more difficult it became. Similarly, the Prophet ﷺ said that the worst criminal of this ummah is the one who asks about something that is not haram and it becomes haram because of his asking. It wasn't difficult. He made it difficult and so it became difficult. Not just for him, but for the rest of the ummah as well. After the religion has been completed, how does the religion become difficult for a person if he makes it difficult for himself? That, for example, when a person is doing something and he becomes obsessive about it or he stresses too much about it or he does it excessively, then what will happen? It will become difficult for him. For example, a person is performing wudu and he's becoming very finicky about tahara. And he's doubting himself constantly. Am I wet from here? Am I wet from here? Am I wet from there? Did I wash myself properly? How many times did I do it? Then what will happen? Shaitan will attack him with more and more waswasa. Isn't it so? And wudu that could take less than a minute will become difficult upon him to the point that he's taking two, three, five minutes to perform that wudu. To the point that every time he has to perform wudu, he will look at it with negative thinking. Isn't it so? It will become burdensome upon him. That, oh, I have to do this and this and this. To the point that a person will say, forget it. I can't do it. It's too hard on me. Do you understand what it means? That you make it difficult upon yourself to the point that you cannot continue. To the point that it takes the joy, the halawa, the joy of worship away. You don't enjoy it, but rather you resent it. It overcomes a person. Similarly, if a person is for example, reciting the Qur'an. And then he is crying. But then he cries so much, so much, that, or he constantly looks at his own faults so much to the point that he cannot continue anymore. Is that right? No. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala requires from us that when we recite the Qur'an, we should reflect on the meaning, we should reflect on ourselves. But this is not required that we cry and cry and cry to the point that we are harming ourselves. You know, sometimes it happens that people are praying together in, for example, Taraweeh Salah, and a person is reciting the Qur'an, and he's crying so much, so much, so much that people are falling. And they're crying out loud. I mean, yes, you should have khushur, you should cry. But the best way of crying and the best way of having khushur was whose? The Prophet ﷺ. And he did not weep like that. What do we learn? That How did he used to cry in his salah? As if it was a kettle that was boiling. So a very muffled sound, and not that a person is wailing out loud and he's not able to focus, he's not able to recite, that his crying overpowers him. So he's making it difficult upon himself that it will become more difficult for him. Can you think of some other examples? How we make deen difficult for ourselves. I remember when we were growing up and we were taught Islamiyat in school, we were taught that for Salatul Isha you have to pray 17 rakat. And believe me, the thought of 17 rakat would freak out all the kids. Now, if you tell children you have to pray four fard, that's mandatory. 
You have to. Okay? And it's very good. I mean, grade four kids, grade five kids, grade six kids, perhaps all of them are not even balagh at that point. But if you teach them, you have to pray 17 rakat for Salatul Isha, who is going to pray? No one is going to pray then. So if you make deen difficult upon yourself, it will become difficult to the point that people will leave it. That they will resent it. They will not enjoy it anymore. Eating halal. We make it such a big issue that sometimes children think that everything is haram except for this, this and this. Do they like the concept of halal and haram? They hate it. They don't want to go grocery shopping with you. I remember when my brother was younger, somebody told me, somebody gave me a whole list of, you know, this is halal, this is haram, and this is mashboo, meaning doubtful, to so stay away from it, and these ingredients, and I got really, you know, careful. And I remember we would go to the grocery store and would read everything. No, this is mashboo, this mashboo, this mashboo. He'd say, I'm not going with you. He wouldn't go with me. And later on I realized that really, we're making life difficult for ourselves. If you have been told by a Muslim, I mean, if a Muslim is offering food to you, then you don't doubt them. Remember the story when Aisha radiallahu asked the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, there are people who become Muslim, they have newly embraced Islam, and they bring meat to us, and we don't know if they've slaughtered it the right way. What did he advise her? Just take it and say, Bismillah. Just take it, because you trust the Muslim. So don't make eating halal difficult for yourself. Okay? Yes, you should. I'm not saying that don't care about the ingredients and don't care about what food they're offering. No, you should be concerned about it. But don't obsess about it so much that you're making life impossible for yourself. Because people even start questioning Muslims. Where did you get this meat from? Did you get it from this store or that store? If you got it from that store, I'm sorry, I'm not eating. Isn't it going to affect your relationships? Aren't you going to become antisocial? Aren't people going to feel hesitant inviting you? Yes. If there is a certificate, in the store that says that the meat in the store is halal, then you trust them, okay? This being like doubtful all the time. Like people doubt, for example, everything, what they're eating, their clothes, where they're going. For example, they go to a, a public washroom, they, they see the, the seat, it is clean, it's dry, there's nothing on it. But then they will not pray afterwards, maybe there was something on the toilet seat. Maybe something touched my clothes, I just don't feel 100% clean. And because of that, you'll delay your salah? Why? Don't make it hard upon yourself. You have been told the rules. You don't see anything. You're dry. It's perfectly fine. Yes, it's not the most comfortable thing. However, you can still pray in that condition. That we make the deen not only harder on ourselves sometimes, but also on other people. And as a result, we turn them away from the religion. That, for example, when people are giving sadaqah or zakat, you know, they want to make sure that it's going somewhere and where it's going. And they doubt so much that other people get freaked out that what's going on. Rasulullah wasallam became angry because one of the imams in the masjid was prolonging the Isha Salah and he was reading Surah Al-Baqarah. Mm-hmm. And then the, the people who were praying behind them, were they said that they stopped coming because they said that we are farmers and we work all day and it's very difficult for us to mm-hmm. stand in Isha for that long. Okay. So Rasulullah reprimanded them yes. for doing that. Yeah. So for example, you're leading somebody in Salah and you know Surah Al-Mulk and you know Surah Al-Hashr and perhaps some other Surahs and you like reciting them in the Salah, perfectly fine. But if you're leading other people, then be careful. Once I saw... Somebody was leading other people in Salah and they started reciting Surah Al-Mulk in Salah Al-Isha. And they read the entire Surah in the first rakah. And in the second rakah, they read, Qul Allahu Ahad. 
Because they themselves were so tired by then. And then as soon as they said salam, the person who was standing behind them, they just came and attacked them literally. That what were you doing? You enjoy it, but you're making it hard upon yourself and also upon other people. And also at Hajj, people you know, impose such difficulties upon themselves. Don't scratch your hair in case your hair falls off. Yes, I'm telling you. They say, don't scratch yourself because you're not allowed to cut your hair. Your hair should not fall off. Don't comb your hair. Don't scratch yourself because your hair will fall out. This is, you're making life difficult upon yourself. You're making being difficult upon yourself. I have noticed some sisters after the salah, they do long, long adhkar. Huh? Sitting there, the husband is waiting for the food and the children are waiting. And But she's not finishing her adhkar. Then let me finish it. Innovation is something that makes a religion difficult. Isn't it? Innovation, bid'ah, makes religion difficult. And when a person does it, he cannot continue for a long time. Because this deen, in and of itself, is easy. The entire religion is easy. If you follow just the religion, it is possible for you. This can be understood by a very easy example, that if, for example, you're inviting people home, and you go to a great length in cleaning your house, and preparing all the food, and in setting up everything, then by the time the guests leave, you're done, you're exhausted. And calling people over is going to be such a big challenge for you. Then, if you keep things simple, then you can enjoy. You're not exhausted, but rather you will enjoy. So, just as it doesn't work out in worldly affairs, it doesn't even work out in religious matters. The actions that are most beloved to Allah are those that are consistent, even if they are less, small. Also, one more thing that we should be careful about is, for example, because we are women, right? So, for example, when it comes to wearing the hijab, What's the main ruling that we have been taught? That it should cover you properly and we know how big or small it should be. And secondly, we also know that it should be not displaying zina. But if a person goes on saying, is this color okay or not? Like you get too much lost in the colors. I'm not saying that next time you wear a shocking pink hijab, don't worry about it. No, we know about the rules. Follow the rules, but don't go on wondering, okay, is this color okay or not? And you put it against your face and you put it against your clothes and you ask this person, another person, another person, you're making it too difficult upon yourself. Isn't it? To the point that you will think, why did I learn about this? Before I used to wear hijab and it was so simple for me. And now I'm always confused. You're confusing yourself. Either we make things too easy for ourselves or we make things too difficult upon ourselves. Similarly, for example, we have been taught that our the jilbab that we wear should be long enough to cover the body. Isn't it? So, for example, if a person says that, you know, if I lift my abaya even a little bit, my feet might show, therefore I'm going to wear socks even when I'm going to the beach and even if it's extremely hot, because my foot might show. It might show, yes, but you're a human being. Which socks did Sahabiyat wear all the time? Tell me. What did they wear? A long jilbab to cover themselves. Because you see, when you have all those sandals sitting in your shoe closet, and you just look at them and you wonder, oh, there was a time I could wear them and now I cannot wear them because my feet might show. Yes, they might. But you are forgiven for that because illa ma zahara minha. This is something that will become apparent just by itself, unintentionally. Isn't it? Similarly, you're wearing a jubab that's long enough to cover, you know, your arms and it's only natural that if you will lift up your arm a bit too much, yes, it's possible that your abaya sleeve might drop a little bit and a little bit of your wrist might show. It's possible. But it doesn't mean that you have to wear something under your hand to cover your thumb and your wrist fully that's tight and that's, 
you know, it has a tight grip all around your wrist and your arm that it's bothering you because a point will come where either you will get sick of it or your family will get sick of it. Or for example, getting obsessive about it and wearing gloves all the time. I mean, I'm not saying that don't wear proper hijab. Wear it. Don't go to either extremes though. The rules that we have been taught is jilbab. And wear a jilbab that covers you properly, but don't go into saying that, no, my gloves are also part of my jilbab and these, what do you call it, those wrist things are also part of my jilbab and these socks are also part of my jilbab. You're making religion difficult upon yourself. Similarly, you're wearing a hijab and your hair is mainly covered. But it's quite possible that as you fix your hijab here or there, a hair or two might slip out. And what's the solution? Put it in, tuck it in. Not that you wear a tight band around your head all the time, that it affects the health of your hair. It gives you a headache. I mean, it depends on person to person. Some people, it doesn't bother them. Other people, it bothers them. Some people, they're affected by it. Other people are not affected by it. Isn't it? But you look at your situation. I'm not saying be very relaxed about your hijab. No. Follow the rules. However, don't make it shadid upon yourself. Assalamualaikum. I was just thinking too about imposing on your own family or children. I know a friend of mine who was saying recently that because she was after her son all the time, uh, make sure you're sitting when you're eating, make sure you're doing this when you're doing that, like constantly after him all the time. And he's a teenager now. He just told her, I'm sick of this. I'm sick of this religion and all these rules and I'm going to stop. Like, he's just like, leave me alone. So just the concept that sometimes we forget that, um, even with young children, I do see moms that are very strict all the time and the kids get, feel like they're restricted yeah. and just they Thinking that even not just posing upon yourself, making it difficult for yourself, but yes. making it difficult for your families as well. Yes. So for example, a child, he's barely learning to eat himself and put the food in his mouth. And if he's standing or something, then you take the food away, you snatch it away from him. And no, sit down and then do it. Okay, let him take the first bite and then make him sit yourself instead of grabbing the food from him and shouting at him. Two-year-old poor little child. That sometimes it happens that when women start wearing hijab, then they say, oh, I can't go here because there are going to be men over there. I can't go to this wedding. I can't go to this family friend's house. I can't go to that dinner. Similarly, if people are coming over, I'm going to be in my room. I'm not coming out because there are men. Yes, the ideal condition is that you don't have to be in those situations. But if they are family, you have to go. And this is why we have been told to wear the hijab. If that was the case, then don't go anywhere. Don't step out of your house. Don't even come to Al-Huda for that matter. Because as you walk in, there are men. And outside there are men. Don't go to the grocery store. Don't step out of your house. This is not what the religion tells us to do. When there are people over or when you have to go somewhere, observe the proper hijab and do what you have to do. Don't isolate yourself. Don't cut yourself off from people. You'll make life difficult for yourself and your family. Like for example, we have been told that when we pray together in salah, stand shoulder to shoulder, foot to foot. Okay, you're praying in salah with somebody and you put your foot next to theirs, but they move it away. Now what should you do? Stretch your legs to the point that you're standing funny or that you put your foot on the other person's foot so that they can't move it anymore? You're making it difficult for yourself and them. Tell me, where is the khushur if you're standing uncomfortably and if you're just chasing the other person's foot? Where is it? And where is his khushur? I remember I, I went to pray salah once with a friend of mine who's not that particular about, you know, standing foot to foot. You know, people are like that sometimes. So anyway, we went to that masjid and it was a masjid where people stood foot to foot, shoulder to shoulder, like strongly. Okay, this was like there. And anyway, she's standing properly that the woman standing next to her is literally chasing her foot. After a few rakar, she's like, that's it, I'm done. 
Never again she went to that masjid. Until today she makes fun. Hmm? I mean, we have been told that fix your saf. Okay? But after one or two attempts, you know that person doesn't understand or doesn't know. فَمَهِلْهُمْ رُوَيْدَ Right? Give them some time. Give them some time. The fact that these are hadiths of the Prophet ﷺ that after you pray Isha, don't talk to anybody and go to sleep. She said, literally, these girls do that. She said, they just have Isha, the doctor, they don't talk to their husband or the in-laws and they live in a mixed gathering. They go and sleep away. And I said, but that's not what it means. And she said, but you have to tell them then. I said, why? She said, why was that hadith quoted to them? These are young girls, they don't understand. And she started, started taking off with me and I explained to her. I said, if you're living in a family, you have to, if there's chores to be done, you can't say, I'm going to sleep. You have to do it. It's an easy way out. Yes. <laughs> it's like a trick of shaitan that he won't come and put what's as don't pray. Don't pray in congregation or don't wear hijab. No, what is he going to do? Make it difficult for us so that we begin to resent it. And that even if we are doing it, we don't enjoy it. We don't like it. So deen is yusr. It is easy. And we should keep it easy for ourselves and other people. We should not make it difficult upon ourselves. One more thing. Learning the deen. Studying the deen or serving the deen. How can a person make it difficult upon himself? That there is no balance. Hmm? That a person, first of all, takes up responsibility of something that he knows he cannot handle. He knows he cannot do. I mean, there are some things that you can do with difficulty, but it is possible for you. Like, for example, for you guys to come here four days a week or five days a week, every person's situation is different. Isn't it? But it's quite possible that for one person, their situation is such that they're not able to come five days. So what should they do? Stop completely? What should they do? Reduce their burden so that they can also take care of the rest of the things that they have to do. Otherwise, they will begin to resent the work that they're doing. Just as a personal example, I'm teaching on the weekends these days. So Saturday, Sunday, I'm coming. And during the week, my commitment initially was only Wednesday, Thursday. So Because I felt that I could handle four days a week, you know, with a gap here and a gap there and, and two kids and family and home, it would be possible. But if I said that, no, I should come here on Monday as well, on Tuesday as well, on Friday as well, because so many people come here and so there's so many things that I can do still, that would be making it difficult for myself at this point, I feel. Because if I would do it, I wouldn't be able to give the haq of my family. Isn't it so? I wouldn't be able to give the haq of myself either. So I don't want to be at a point where I don't enjoy this work. I want to enjoy it fully. So you keep a balance. So if you can mention that either we make it too easy and do nothing, or we make it too difficult, doing everything and then resenting it and leaving it. Balance has to be maintained and every person has to look at his own life and situation. That doable yusr does not mean that there will be no challenge, that there will be no difficulty. No, there will be difficulties, there will be challenges. However, it will still be possible for you. But if it's come to a point where it's affecting your health and your eating and your sleeping and your mood and your energy level to a point that people are afraid to even talk to you, then there's something that needs to get fixed. Remember that example that I gave you of the word yusr, yassar al-farusu, rukub that the faras, the horse has been prepared for riding. That the horse is ready, all you have to do is just get on the horse and start running. But tell me something, when you ride a horse, is it challenging? Yes, it is. It is challenging because you have to stay focused. Similarly, you have to be careful about how you direct the horse 
And the whole experience is enjoyable, but sometimes it's also very tiring. When you get off, your shoulders are hurting and your legs are hurting. You've been shaken completely. Every part of your body has been shaken. But it was possible, isn't it? It left you a little tired. However, it was possible. So deen is easy. It is doable. There are challenges. There are some difficulties. But if a person makes it very, very difficult upon himself, then he will not be able to continue for very long. And this applies to wudu and salah and recitation of the Qur'an and our dealings with other people and our wearing of hijab. Everything that we do, the food that we eat, because deen is about every aspect of our lives. So if we make it difficult in any aspect, it will overpower us. That it happens that as we're learning, sometimes we go too fast, right? We accelerate very fast and then we regret later. Like for example, it's possible that a woman did not even wear hijab. She started learning the Quran, she's wearing the hijab, and all of a sudden she's wearing everything, and the family's like, what's wrong with her? They're not able to accept it. So what do we learn? Go gradually, one step after the other. Slowly and gradually, because when you go gradually, then you're taking everybody along. They're more accepting. And it's easier for you to adjust as well. This is how the religion was revealed. Isn't it so? Insaf min nafsik. One more thing that we must understand is that we should know the difference between doing what is recommended and making the deen difficult upon ourselves. What's the difference? It's the same thing, like we discussed earlier, that just as something may require some difficulty, but it is possible, it is better for you to do it, okay, as opposed to making something impossible upon yourself. So for example, doing something that is recommended. You're praying salah and you pray nafal. Is that something recommended? Yes. But will you say that, no, I'm making the deen difficult upon myself? Not necessarily. If you're praying two nafal, for example, good. But if you're praying four or six, is that difficult? Making it difficult upon yourself? Yes. So every person has to see their situation and what they're doing and what's possible for them to do. This hadith does not mean stop doing what is recommended. Just do the bare minimum. No. This is not what it means. We have to do the bare minimum. We also have to try to excel. We have to do ihsan. We have to do mustahab. But we are not to make it difficult in ourselves. There is no one hardcore rule. It's Every situation is different. So the Prophet ﷺ, he said that, وَلَنْ يُشَادَّ الدِّينَ أَحَدٌ إِلَّا غَلَبَهُ Therefore we should make the deen easy for ourselves. And What's the advice that the Prophet ﷺ gave? فَسَدِّدُوا وَقَارِبُوا وَأَبْشِرُوا وَاسْتَعِينُوا سَدِّدُوا What does it mean by سَدِّدُوا? سَدِّدُوا is from سِدَاد سِينَ دَال دَال قُولُ قَوْلًا سَدِيدًا Straight سِدَادُ السَّهْم What does it mean? To straighten the arrows, right? Or to hit the target. So سَدِّدُوا meaning Asibu meaning hit the target, meaning do whatever you have to do properly. In other words, do it right. Do what has been commanded and do it right. Don't compromise. Don't fall back. Because when we try to make things easy for ourselves, we start compromising. For example, if a person says, oh, it's too difficult for me to pray nafal, they even stop praying sunnah. No, no. Saddidu. Do it right. Try to attain perfection. Waqaribu. Qaribu from Qurb. So Qaribu, try to be as near as possible to perfection. Wa over here has been understood as aw or. 
meaning be perfect and if not possible at least try to be close to perfection be perfect do it right or try to be perfect try your best to do it right so for example assignments and tests do them on time properly do your best give it your 100% but if you are in a situation where it's not possible for you to give it 100% of your time then try to be as near as possible to perfection so for example you're preparing for your ulumul hadith test now one is that you study from morning until night time if your schedule allows you go ahead but if it doesn't allow you then don't keep your children hungry and say i'm not doing anything today you are on your own because i have a test tomorrow i have a test i have a test i have a test you are on your own i don't know you you don't know me no if you cannot do it 100% try to be as close as possible do whatever you can do because as women our problem is that either we want perfection or we want nothing we say either i want to do it perfectly or i'm not going to do it at all no do whatever your situation allows you to do the ideal is saddidu if that's not possible qaribu that every person's situation is different so you're striving wa inna sa'yahu sawfa yura so every person has to strive and do the best that you can qaribu so saddidu wa qaribu and the fact is that we have been told to do everything properly to do everything right but can any person claim that they are perfect no one can claim that so you can never claim to be perfect but you can try to be near perfection qaribu وَأَبِشِرُوا This is the result. Be happy. Rejoice. When you've given your best, when you've tried to be as close as possible to perfection, then be happy. For example, you tried your best to study and to do very, very well on your test. You tried to قَارِبُوا And the result that you got was perhaps not something that you wanted. You aimed for a 90, you got 80. Be happy. Be grateful. And also the thing is that given the situation that a person is in if he tries to be near perfection as close as possible then he will get the reward of perfection even abshiru be happy and also that be happy we can also understand this as don't become boring and don't display sadness and misery and worry all the time because when we're trying to do everything perfectly we become very sad people we become very boring people depressing people giving angry people giving up negative energy that even children are afraid to approach us she's on her computer right now don't disturb her she's got that blue book open don't disturb her abshiru be happy relax and also sometimes in trying to near perfection we deprive ourselves ourselves of halal delights of halal enjoyment like for example i want to make sure that i'm wearing my hijab perfectly so i'm going to wear socks all the time therefore i'm going to wear boring shoes all the time even if i'm going to a wedding and it's going to be segregated i'm not going to wear those nice sandals because my feet might show wear longer baya please and be happy and wear those sandals please wear longer baya that will cover your sandals cover your feet and if you're not 100% happy take your sandals with you there and wear them there but please be happy don't become a boring person the religion does not require this from us that when you have a this attitude of all or nothing then if you have it all then you're happy and if you don't have it all then you become sad and upset so try to have it all saddidu but if you cannot qaribu and be happy la in shakartum la azidannakum so 
Sometimes we focus on what we're not able to do too much. And because of that, we become more sad and upset and angry and depressed. No, focus on what you are able to do. And when you're grateful, then you will be able to do more. Who needs to be perfect in everything. If I'm cooking, it should be perfect. Cleaning, perfect. Studying, perfect. So at times I notice that if I, I can't do it perfect, I left it. Exactly, this is the case what you're saying. But I was thinking why this hadith is in the chapter of Iman. Because the more, this is why, because you like Iman, that's why you're doing that. Mm-hmm. The more you study, the more you try to develop the Iman, the more you get, okay, what happened if you don't make a mistake? Because then you can't continue. Now being doing multiple things, if I think I'm going to get my 100 marks on my test, I'm going to be get offended. So I'm going to leave it. So better you keep doing. This is what is required from the moment. No matter what you are doing, before if I used to get even a 0.25 less marks, my kids know at home. Your mom is not in good mood. She didn't get 25 out of 25. She got 24.75 today. So this is how I was. Now if there is a mistake, who cares? So Alhamdulillah, this is yeah. how it should be. I mean, definitely you should try to do everything perfectly, bring Ihsan into your actions. But if you're in a situation where it's not possible for you, then don't you know overburden yourself. Because then you're not going to enjoy what you're doing. And why is it necessary to enjoy what you're doing? So that you're happy. You're a happy person and you're a grateful person. And that your niya stays correct. That you have to strive to. So, abshiru. Wasta'inu, seek help how? Bilghadwati. What is ghadwa? Ghadwa is a trip that is taken at the beginning of the day. And rawha is a trip, a journey that is taken when? At the end of the day. وَشَيْئِمْ مِنَ الدُّلْجَةِ Dulja is a trip that is taken when? At night time. So basically, these words are used for what? Journeying, travel, trips. Remember? Rawahuha, Morning journey and the evening journey of Sulaiman through wind. So... Three times I've mentioned over here. Beginning of the day, end of the day, and a little bit of the night. The Arabs, when they would travel, they would use these times. Why? Because it was most convenient and most efficient to travel at these times. Midday has not been mentioned. Why? Because if you set out at that time, you're going to burn in the heat. You're going to get exhausted very quickly. All night. That's not right. Why? Because night time is essentially a time for what? Rest and sleep. So, just as you journey, in your worldly journeys, in your worldly travels, at what time? Early morning, end of the day, and a part of the night. Similarly, journey towards Allah. How? Using these times to do what you have to do. In other words, the Prophet ﷺ is teaching us effective time management. Make use of these times. If you work at these times, if you do ibadah at these times, then you will do what you're doing very efficiently as well as effectively. Think about it. Midday, when you're doing something, afternoon time, are you tired at that time? You are very tired. Why? Because you've been up since morning, working, working, working. And now, right in the middle, if you start doing something new, you're going to be exhausted. So for example, as soon as you go home, if you sit down with your book and your notes, are you going to be able to study? No, not at all. You won't be able to. When is the ideal time? Morning. And secondly, end of the day. When the kids are sleeping, when everybody's done with their dinner, everybody's doing their work. So at that time, make use of that time. Don't waste that time. And thirdly, a part of the night. So journey in your journey towards Allah, 
just as you journey in your journeys of this world. You choose that time which is most effective. So the Prophet ﷺ is teaching us time management over here. A lot of time is wasted. You can say if you try to do your work at other times, you'll end up using a lot of time. And you will not accomplish much. But if you do a little bit of work even at this time, you'll go a long way. Part of our problem is that we complain all the time that I don't have time. I'm too busy. I don't have time at all. But the fact is that we have to make time. We have to make time. And especially these three times, this is when generally you're on your own. Generally. Except for perhaps mothers who have little children. But generally, you're on your own at these times. Early morning, end of the day, and a part of the night. So make use of these times. I'll give you my personal example. When I go home from here, dinner comes in, and you know, one thing after the other, until the kids are sleeping. And then you have, I'm sure with many of you, you also experience the same thing. And then you have some time when you can actually do something. If you... As soon as you go home, you open up your books and you're like trying to study and cook and look after the crying children at the same time. You cannot get anything done. You'll be drained. But if you don't open your bag at that time, just give attention to your children, feed them, feed the family, cook, clean, whatever. They're sleeping, then you open up your bag. Take half an hour, 45 minutes. But that 45 minutes where you can concentrate is much better than two hours where you're not able to concentrate. Similarly, early morning and also part of the night. My mother, she always used to advise us and other people as well that when you're mentally tired, then you start doing physical work. She gave me her personal example that when she was in university, she would study in the library all day, and then she'd come home, and then she'd be mentally exhausted. Even if she tried to study, she wouldn't be able to. So she would do her you know, laundry or tidy up or whatever at that time. But when you're active and alert, don't start cooking at that time. Don't start ironing at that time. Don't start doing laundry at that time. No. Because when you're physically tired, can you concentrate? You can't. But when you're mentally tired, you can do physical work that doesn't require much brain power. Because all you need is a cue and your brain will do the work automatically. Your brain does not even work much when you're doing something that you do in, in a routine. So the Prophet ﷺ said that make use of these times and accomplish your tasks. Worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at these times. So in this uh, hadith, we have been taught about maintaining balance, maintaining the right balance. And how is balance maintained? Not by making things difficult upon ourselves, nor by making things too easy on ourselves. Balance is maintained by doing what you have to do. How? Properly, in the most efficient way. And how can that be done? When you do it at the right time. So for proper task management, what do you need? Proper time management. This is what will bring balance in our lives. Let's continue. Bab as-salatu min al-iman. As-salah, prayer, is from iman. Meaning it is a part of iman. وَقَوْلُ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى And the statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُضِيعَ إِيمَانَكُمْ And Allah would never, He would not waste your iman. يَعْنِي Meaning صَلَاتَكُمْ By the way, what does the word يَعْنِي means? Huh? He or it means. What is this word, ya'ni? It is a fail. Isn't it a fail? Ya'ni, yaf'ilu. Okay, ana, meaning he meant by that. Ya'ni, he means by that. So, ya'ni, salatakum, your salah, indal bayt, 
near the house. What it means is you're praying salah facing the bait. Which bait is this? Baytul Maqdis. Because we know that the Prophet ﷺ, when he migrated from Mecca to Medina, he prayed salah facing which qibla? Baytul Maqdis. In Mecca, he faced the Kaaba in such a way that the Kaaba would be between him and Baytul Maqdis. So he would be able to pray facing both ways. But after the Hijrah, he was between the Kaaba, between Mecca and Jerusalem. As a result, he could either face Kaaba or he could face Baytul Maqdis. And he was commanded by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he had to face Baytul Maqdis. Why? Because the Yahud were in Medina. Alright? The Yahud were in Medina. And we know that the Yahud were who? The previous Ummah. Okay, the previous believers, the Ahlul Kitab, they were the previous believers, so their actions had to be the same. And also, inshallah, as we will learn in the hadith, that they liked the fact that the Prophet ﷺ did that. They felt closer to him, and this was a way of their coming to Islam as well. So anyway, we know that eventually, the Qibla was shifted to Mecca, Karba. So the Prophet ﷺ had to face Karba again. But then when that happened, people were worried about the Salat that they had prayed facing so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed, وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُضِيعَ إِيمَانَكُمْ Allah would not waste your iman. So salah has been called iman over here. Why do you think salah is called iman? What does iman include? Just action? What else does it include? Belief in the heart. Iman includes the actions of the heart. It includes statements of the tongue. It also includes other actions of the limbs. And if you think about it, salah, does it include all of these four things? Yes, it does. You have to have the right belief in your heart that you're praying with ikhlas for who? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because He's the one who deserves worship. This is the purpose of your creation. Secondly, amalul qalb. Amalul qalb like ikhlas, like khushur, like fear, like hope, love. You have to have all of this in salah. Qawlul lisan. What do you say in salah? It's all speech. Isn't it? From Allahu Akbar to assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. You're saying something or the other in every step that you take in salah. And Actions are also involved. So this is why salat is called iman, because it includes all these four components. And this shows to us that iman is incomplete without salah. If a person does not pray, then his iman would be incomplete. حدثنا عمر بن خالد قال حدثنا زهير قال حدثنا أبو إسحاق عن البراء أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم كان he was أول First, مَا قَدِمَ الْمَدِينَةِ كَانَ أَوَّلَ مَا قَدِمَ الْمَدِينَةَ The first time that he arrived in Medina, that he went to Medina. قَدِمَ He advanced towards. So the first time he went to Medina, meaning when he migrated, where did he go? نَزَلَ He literally means descended. Where? عَلَى أَجْدَادِهِ Upon his grandfathers. What does it mean by this? نَزَلَ To descend. Remember I told you, that the word nazala is used for coming down. Why? Because primarily it means arriving at your destination. Why? How? Because when you arrive at your destination, you descend from your vehicle, your animal. Isn't it? And you descend, you bring down all of your luggage as well. So nazala gives the meaning of arriving. So the first time he came to Medina, he arrived where? He stayed where? Ala ajdadi, with his grandfathers. أو قال, or he said, أخوالihi, his maternal uncles. Why? Because من الأمصار, from the Ansar. So this shows that the Prophet Wasallam's maternal family was from where? Medina. Remember when the Prophet Wasallam's mother passed away? She was coming back from Yathrib. And on the way back, she passed away at the place of Abwa. 
So he had relatives in Medina and he stayed with them first. And then he moved on to elsewhere. What does it show to us? Relatives have a haqq upon you, have a right upon you. So if you go to a city where your relatives are, they have the most right of hosting you. Even if it's for some time. Let's say it's inconvenient for you to stay there for longer. Or you have a better option of staying somewhere else because your work is over there. When you go there first, meet them. And then do whatever you have to do. This is the sunnah of the Prophet وَأَنَّهُ And indeed he صَلَّى He prayed. Qibala Two words meaning facing. Baytul Maqdas Baytul Maqdas in Jerusalem. So he started praying where? Towards Baytul Maqdas. For how long? Sittata Six Ashara Ten Meaning sixteen Shahra Months. So he prayed facing Baytul Maqdas for how long? Sixteen months. Aw or Sabata Ashara Shahran, seventeen months. So the first sixteen or seventeen months they prayed facing Baytul Maqdas. Wakana Yurjibuhu. Wakana and it used to Yurjibuhu, meaning he used to like it. This is what he wanted, he used to wish. What? Antakuna that it would be Qibla tuhu his qibla qibla al bayti towards the house. Which bayt is this? Baytullah. Meaning Kaaba in Makkah. So he prayed facing Baytul Maqdas because that was a command of Allah. However, what did he want to do? Face Baytullah in Makkah. وَأَنَّهُ صَلَّى And indeed he prayed أَوَّلَ صَلَاتٍ The first prayer صَلَّاهَا That he prayed Which one was it? صَلَاةَ الْعَصْرِ صَلَاةُ الْعَصْرِ Meaning the first prayer that he prayed facing Baytullah. Because he used to wish that it would be Baytullah. And eventually we know that the command came. So when the command came, the first salah that he prayed facing Baytullah Kaaba was which one? Salatul Asr. وَصَلَّى مَعَهُ And he prayed with him. Who? Qawmun, a group of people. A group of people prayed with him facing Kaaba. But obviously everybody did not know about it, that the command had come, the qibla had been changed. فَخَرَجَ رَجُلٌ So a man left from where? Mimman from the ones who salla ma'ahu, from those who prayed with him. So those who prayed with the Prophet ﷺ, one man from them, from among them, after he prayed, he left. He went on his way after the salah. So you can imagine people are praying when they're done. He went away. And then famarra, he passed by ala upon ahli masjidin, people of a masjid. Wahum and they, raki'una, they were doing rukur, meaning they were performing salah. And which way were they praying? Towards Baytul Maqdas. But the command had already come to pray where? Towards Baytullah. But they did not know. So when he saw them praying towards Baytul Maqdas, he said, فَقَالَ So he said, أَشْهَدُ بِاللَّهِ I bear witness by Allah. I call Allah to witness. Meaning I swear by Allah. لَقَدْ صَلَّيْتُ Certainly I prayed. مَعَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ With the Messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم. Qibala Makkata towards Makkah. By Allah, I just prayed with the Prophet facing Makkah. So what happened? These people were in Rukur. And they heard that. So what did they do? Fadaru. So they revolved, they turned, Daur, Dara Yaduru to go around. So they turned around, Kamahum as they were, meaning in Rukur, Qibala al Bayti towards the house of Allah. Because remember, when you're facing the Kaaba in Medina, your back is towards Jerusalem. When you're facing Makkah, your back is against Jerusalem. And when you're facing Jerusalem, your back is towards Makkah. So they were facing Jerusalem when they 
were told by Allah, I just prayed with the Prophet facing Kaaba. So what happened? They turned around. You understand? They took a complete turn. In what? In their position. Kamahum, as they were. And then what happened? وَكَانَتِ الْيَهُودُ And the Jews used to قَدْ أَعْجَبَهُمْ They used to like it. إِذْ كَانَ When he used to, meaning the Prophet ﷺ used to, يُصَلِّي He used to pray قِبَلَ بَيْتِ الْمَقْدِسِ They used to like the fact that the Prophet ﷺ used to pray towards Bayt al-Maqdis. They liked it. وَأَهْلُ الْكِتَابِ As well as the people of the book. Who does Ahlul Kitab refer to? The Christians. Meaning all of the Ahlul Kitab. The Jews as well as the Christians. All of the Ahlul Kitab. They liked it. That he prayed facing Jerusalem. But, فَلَمَّا وَلَّا وَجْهَهُ But then when he turned his face, قِبَلَ الْبَيْتِ Towards Baytullah, أَنْكَرُوا ذَلِكْ They disliked that. They disapproved of it. They didn't like it. قَالَ زُهَيْرٌ Zuhair said, حَدَّثَنَا أَبُوْ إِسْحَاقَ عَنِ الْبَرَاءِ فِي حَدِيثِهِ هذا that أنه that Abu Ishaq, he narrated to us from Bara' in his hadith, meaning in the hadith that he narrated, that أَنَّهُ mata that indeed he died. Who died? عَلَى الْقِبْلَةِ Upon the Qibla. Which Qibla? Facing Jerusalem. قَبْلَ أَن تُحَوَّلَ Before it was changed. Who died? رِجَالٌ Some men. So in other words, some men died while they were still praying. Facing which Qibla? Jerusalem. Baytul Maqdis. وَقُتِلُوا And some were killed. Where? When? In the battles. فَلَمْ نَدْرِي So we did not know. مَا نَقُولُ فِيهِمْ What do we say about them? Meaning, they died while they were praying towards Bayt al-Maqdis. They weren't praying towards the actual Qibla. So is their salah going to be accepted? Is it going to be worth anything? What happened? فَأَنزَلَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى So that is when Allah revealed وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُضِيعَ إِيمَانَكُمْ You see? How we are to understand the Qur'an with the ahadith. Otherwise, you cannot understand some verses of the Qur'an. You have to look at both of them together. Because the hadith, the sunnah is, you can say, the context of certain verses. You cannot understand them without the context in mind. So this hadith, in a way, is explaining what? The verse. Now, what do we learn in this hadith? First of all, we see the Prophet ﷺ had maternal relatives in Medina. And when he arrived there, he stayed with them initially. And when he first came to Medina, he was praying towards Bayt al-Maqdis. And this was at the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This was not out of his own wish, but this was at the command of Allah. Because if it was not at the command of Allah, he would have been corrected. Just as he was corrected in other ways. لِمَا تُحَرِّمُ مَا أَحَلَّ اللَّهُ لَكَ لِمَا أَزِنْتَ لَهُمْ But this is something that Allah did not correct. For 16, 17 months, they were praying facing Bayt al-Maqdis. And what was the reason? Why was he required to pray facing Bayt al-Maqdis for some time? Why? It served many purposes. That basically, that the religion is, or the source of the religion is the same. That Islam is only a continuation of the religion that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed previously. It's not something different. Exactly, it's not a new religion, rather it's a continuation. And that is exactly what we know about this deen of ours. That this Qur'an is musaddiq for what was before. And also, that when the Qibla was changed eventually from Bayt al-Maqdis to Kaaba, this was to, in a way, indicate to the youth that the religious leadership was taken away from them now. They were not worthy of it anymore. And we know that the Qibla was always Baytullah. إِنَّ أَوَّلَ بَيْتٍ وُضِعَ لِلنَّاسِ لَلَّذِي 
بِبَكَّةَ That was the first house of worship and that is what the people faced. And Sulaiman a.s. It was at his time when the masjid was built that people started facing Baytul Maqdis. But before that, they would face what? The Kaaba, Baytullah. And we know that Ibrahim a.s. is the one who built the Kaaba. Isn't it? So all of his descendants obviously would face the Kaaba in prayer. So this was the original Qibla. Just for some time, it was shifted. And then eventually it was shifted back again. But primarily from this hadith, what do we learn? That salah is iman. This is why Imam Bukhari is mentioning this. That we see that people were praying together and there comes one man and he bears witness by Allah and people changed the qibla as they were. They moved. What does it show to us? That certain movements are obligatory in salah. We're not allowed to move here and there unnecessarily, but certain movements are obligatory. So for example, if you're praying salah and somebody tells you you're not facing the right qibla, don't ignore them, nor break your salah. No, just turn. Similarly, if you realize in the middle of your salah that, for example, your shoe has some filth or dirt on it, then take it off if you're praying with your shoes on. That movement is there, but it is necessary. Yeah, because the Prophet ﷺ would also do that. I mean, he would say the takbir facing the qibla, and then uh, he didn't care as to where the animal turned right or left, or that didn't matter. For the fault, you have to face the qibla. And for the fard, you don't pray in your car. You have to pray standing. Okay? Okay, let's continue. Bab husni islam al-mar'i. The excellence or the beauty of a person's islam. Why is this mentioned in Kitabul iman Does iman have anything to do with that? Aren't we supposed to perfect and beautify our actions? Isn't it? Yes, we are required to do that. After iman, after belief, one must beautify his actions. Qala Malikun, Malik said. Do you notice something here? It's not haddathana. He says, Qala Malikun. He's quoting Malik. He's not narrating the hadith from him. He's not taking the hadith from him. He's just quoting it. Why? Why? And then he mentions the chain that Malik had. So Imam Malik had this hadith. He wrote it or he taught it or something. But Imam Bukhari got to know about it. He just quoted it as it was without saying that he narrated to me. Why? Because first of all, it's quite possible he didn't have this chain. Do you understand? Because, I mean, to quote someone that they narrated to me, you have to have heard it from them. You have to have learned it from them. And to just read it somewhere in a text, that's different. Like for example, we cannot say, Imam Bukhari narrated to us. Can we claim that? We cannot because we never heard it from him. But we can say, Imam Bukhari has quoted this. And this shows the amana that he maintained. The amana that he had. Because you know how people, they say, yeah, I learned from so and so. Whereas you just read it in their book. But you claim that as if you were, you are their student. And they were your teachers. If you had a personal relationship. No. There should be amana. And also, Many times it happens that people, you know, there's an idea and people steal it and they claim that it's theirs. You know, this is why they have intellectual property, copyrights and so on and so forth. But look at our deen, look at our scholars, that how truthful and honest they were. If they didn't have a chain, they didn't just make it up. They quoted it as it was. And it's also quite possible that Imam Bukhari only quoted what Malik said, okay, and he didn't 
narrate it. Why? Because this version of the hadith is, does not meet Imam Bukhari's strict criteria of authenticity. If it did not meet his strict criteria of authenticity, he wouldn't narrate it as a hadith. He would just quote it as somebody's narration, but not his own narration. Do you get it? So, قَالَ مَالِكٌ أَخْبَرُنِي زَيْدُ بْنُ أَسْلَمَ أَنْ عَطَاءَ بْنَ يَسَارٍ أخبره أن أبا سعيد الخدرية أخبره أنه سمع رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يقول إذا أسلم العبد when a servant submits meaning when he accepts Islam when he becomes a Muslim and then فحسن إسلامه and then he also beautifies he perfects he he beautifies his Islam then what will happen? يُكَفِّرُ الله عنه Allah will expiate from him كُلَّ سَيِّئَةٍ Every sin that كَانَ زَلَفَهَا That he previously did. Every sin that he committed previously, Allah will remove it. When? Just when a person accepts Islam? But what's the second condition? فَحَسُنَ إِسْلَامُهُ He perfects it. He beautifies it as well. وَكَانَ بَعْدَ ذَلِكَ And after that is what? القصاص, retribution. What does it mean by that? That when a person embraces Islam, and then he perfects his Islam, he beautifies his Islam, then all of his previous sins, what are they? Wiped off, finished. Allah removes them. But then from that point onwards, there is going to be qisas. What is qisas? Retribution. Qisas over here is in its literal meaning, not technical meaning. Literal meaning, that there is going to be retribution. Meaning whatever he does, he will be held accountable for it. So if he commits a sin, he will be held responsible for it. The previous sins, yes, he's forgiven. But the sins that he commits from now on, he will be held accountable for them. So وَكَانَ بَعْدَ ذَلِكَ القصاص. And what is القصاص? That الْحَسَنَةُ A good deed بِعَشْرِ أَمْثَالِهَا Ten times it's like Meaning a good deed will be multiplied how many times? Ten times. To ila sabi'i mi'ati dhi'fin. To seven hundred times. Was sayyi'atu and the sin, evil, bimithliha, it's like only. Illa an yatajawaz Allahu anha, except that Allah forgives him for it. Meaning he overlooks that. So when a person embraces Islam and he beautifies it, then all his previous sins forgiven. But from that point onwards, what happens? If he does a good deed, Allah will multiply that good for him from 10 to 700 times. And if he does bad, he will only get one sin for that unless Allah forgives that as well. Now, the reason why Imam Bukhari is quoting this hadith over here is, فَحَسُنَ إِسْلَامُهُ These are the words. What does it mean by beautifying one's Islam? How can a person make his Islam husn, beautiful? That whenever he performs any action of Islam, any action, he does it with ikhlas, sincerity, because that's when the action will be beautiful. And secondly, following the Prophet ﷺ. So it's not that a person says, okay, la ilaha illallah, ashadu an la ilaha illallah, wa ashadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah. It's time to pray, I'm not going to pray. Or it's time to do this, no, I'm not going to do this. I have to do this, no, I'm not going to do this. No, hasuna, he has to do something as well. And then, he will not say, yeah, I pray, but whenever I feel like, or however I feel like. No, you have to pray the way the Prophet ﷺ taught you. And you have to have ikhlas, that a person does not have love for, for example, the idols that he used to worship. No, he has ikhlas now. So when a person makes his Islam beautiful, meaning he wholeheartedly and completely enters into Islam.
wholeheartedly and completely enters into Islam. That Islam is a part of his life, his batin and his zahir. His heart, his feelings, his thinking, as well as his actions and his words. He is completely entered in this way. Then all of his previous sins are forgiven. And thereafter, there will be qasas. If he does good, he'll be rewarded many, many times for it. If he does evil, he will be held accountable for it. Or Allah may even forgive that. So this shows to us that the actions that we do, how should we do them? With husn. Okay? With husn, with beauty, with perfection. This is also a part of Iman. Yeah, because أَتَّائِبُ مِنَ الدَّنْبِ كَمَلَّا دَنْبَلَ This is also in a way applicable to a person who was doing wrong before, then he does tawbah. When he does tawbah, then his sin, inshallah, if the tawbah is sincere, is accepted, he is forgiven for that. And after that, from that point onwards, he should be careful about every action of his. Now Imam Bukhari mentions the hadith that he has, which is similar to this. حدثنا إسحاق بن منصور قال حدثنا عبد الرزاق قال أخبرنا معمر عن همام عن أبي هريرة قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إذا أحسن أحدكم إسلامه إذا أحسن when he does good أحدكم one of you إسلامه his religion his Islam meaning he improves it he does it properly he beautifies it he perfects it and how does he perfect it with إخلاص and with following the Prophet ﷺ. فَكُلُّ حَسَنَةٍ Then every deed, يَعْمَلُهَا That he does, تُكْتَبُ It is written, لَهُ for him. Every deed that he does is written for him. How? بِعَشْرِ أَمْثَالِهَا Ten times, it's like. Meaning ten times more. إِلَى سَبْعِ مِئَةِ ضِعْفٍ To seven hundred times. وَكُلُّ سَيِّئَةٍ And every sin, يَعْمَلُهَا That he does it. It is written for him, بِمِثْلِهَا It's like. Meaning, a sin is written only once, but a good deed is written, the reward is multiplied many, many times more. So the meaning is similar. Bab أَحَبُّ الدِّينِ إِلَى اللَّهِ أَدْوَمُهُ أَحَبُّ الدِّينِ Most beloved of deen. إِلَى اللَّهِ to Allah is أَدْوَمُهُ It's most consistent. What it means by deen over here is ibadah, acts of worship. The acts of worship which Allah loves the most, which ones are they? The ones that a person does consistently, regularly. Not here and there and then nowhere. No, regularly. حدثنا محمد بن المثنى حدثنا يحيى عن هشام قال أخبرني أبي عن عائشة So Aisha رضي الله she is narrating that أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم دخل عليها he entered upon her. Meaning he came to the house of Aisha Dhanha, to her Hujrah. Wa'indaha and with her was who? Imra'atun, a woman. So he came home to Aisha Dhanha and he found there was a woman with Aisha Dhanha. Qala, he asked her, Man hadi, who is she? Qalat fulanatu. She said, so and so. Meaning she told him as to who she was and she told him about the name but the name has not been narrated. Tadkuru, she mentioned, Min salatiha, her salah. Meaning Aisha radiranha then mentioned what? About the salah of that woman. Meaning she started praising her salah. She started praising, Aisha radiranha started praising the salah of that woman. Perhaps that woman was in some other corner or somewhere else or she wasn't there while the Prophet was talking to Aisha radiranha. But anyway, he asked her and Aisha radiranha, she started praising the woman and her salah. And from another version we learned that 
this woman used to pray all night long. So Aisha radiallahu anha praised her. I mean, she was impressed, like any one of us would be impressed. So قَالَ The Prophet ﷺ said, Mah, Mah. Do you remember the word Mah? It's a word that you cannot give a grammatical definition to. Because it's not mushtaq. Like for example, it has been said that it is ism fa'il. However, you don't go into saying, okay, what's the root of it? Like you would say for any other word. These are of those words. Mah is used for showing disapproval or to stop a person from what they're saying. It is used with regards to aqwal. So mah, meaning enough, stop. So for example, if a person is praising someone constantly, you're like, okay, fine. So similarly mah, meaning enough, okay, that's enough. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, عَلَيْكُمْ upon you bima with that which tutiquna you are able to do. Meaning you are supposed to do what you are able to do. Do what you're able to do. You must do what you're able to do. Not what you're not able to do. Because فَوَاللَّهِ For by Allah لَا يَمَلُّ اللَّهُ Allah does not get tired or bored. حَتَّى until تَمَلُّ You all get bored. You get wary of doing what you're not able to do. And then you stop, but Allah does not get tired. وَكَانَ And it was أَحَبَّ الدِّينِ the most beloved of deen, meaning the most beloved acts of worship, ilayhi to him, meaning to Allah, is what? Ma dama alayhi sahibuhu. Ma that which dama, he remained constantly. Who? Sahibuhu. Its companion, meaning the one who's doing it. So the most beloved action to Allah is which one? The one that the person does how? Regularly and constantly. There are many things that we can learn from this hadith. First of all, there's no harm in telling a person about the name of an individual they're asking about. Like for example, if you're talking on the phone and your husband asks you, who are you talking to? There's no harm in him asking or in you telling. Okay, Because we feel that, oh, why is he being so suspicious? And it's up to me. Why do I have to tell him about everything that goes on? No, the Prophet ﷺ came and he asked, who is this woman? He didn't say, oh, sister, don't look at her and go away. No, normal, you come into your house, somebody is over, no harm in asking who it is. Because when we think about, you know, hijab and segregation, we think, oh, no one should ever come across another person and you can't even by mistake talk to a man on the phone. Forget about mentioning the sister's name. No, our religion is not unnatural. Okay, It's natural that such interactions will happen. But obviously, you stay within the bounds. Okay, So, the Prophet ﷺ asked her that who is this woman? So Aisha mentioned her name. And Aisha was very impressed by that woman. So she started praising her salat. That, oh, she prays all night. You know, like when somebody asks you about someone, then you start praising them. Oh, you know, the sister, she's the one who does such and such. And that brother, he's the one who does that and that. And we get very impressed. And that's one of the first things that we mention in order to describe them. So Aisha also described that woman with what? Her excessive worship, her salah. But the Prophet ﷺ was not impressed. Why? Because this woman used to pray all night long. So the Prophet ﷺ said that you must do what you are able to do. Don't overburden yourself with what you cannot do. Because if you burden yourself with what you cannot do for longer, eventually you will get tired. You will get bored. But Allah, He does not get tired of recording your deeds.
And the most beloved actions to Allah are which ones? Those which are consistent. So any action that we do, we should do it consistently. And that is only possible if we're actually able to do it. Because we don't want to be like the one who says, I used to do such and such, but then I stopped doing it. Don't be like that. The Prophet ﷺ advised Ibn Umar don't be like the one who says, I used to pray in the night, but then I stopped. We don't want to be like that. And also, we want to die in a state while we are doing something good. And that's only possible if we do it consistently and regularly. It will not happen just by chance. So, consistency is required. Those actions are the most beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we see that the Prophet ﷺ's way was also, what way? Of consistency. That it's amazing how he's put these hadith in Kitabul Iman, that where Iman has so much importance and it requires action from us, and so many great actions have been mentioned, that you raise the bar, you raise the standard for yourself. However, be moderate. And whatever you do, do it consistently. You see how Imam Bukhari is not just writing the hadith, he's also teaching us how to think. He's fixing our thinking. And you will notice how Haya is from Iman. Then a few principles he discusses. And then again, this action is from Iman. And then a few principles he discusses. And then again, these actions are from Iman. Because now we will learn about how going for the janazah is a part of Iman. So he's mentioning actions not all together, but spread out. Why? Because then it's easier for you to do it. It's easier for you to digest the information. That you really have to use your mind to understand the book. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.